Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Arcanex Sessions, episode 150. Today, Donna, Ken, and I are joined by Paulette Singley. Paulette is a respected architectural historian, educator, and author. Her writing and editing expands beyond the world of architecture, looking at connections within the culinary arts and film. In today's conversation, we're focusing on her latest book, How to Read Architecture, an Introduction to Interpreting the Built Environment. It's a must-read for architecture students, architects, designers, and admirers of the built world. All right. So we're here with Paulette Singley. Thanks so much for coming down to our studio. I know that it was a pretty cl- uh, short commute as you're a neighbor of mine that we've recently discovered. Thanks thanks for having me, Paul. Yes, it was a, a very long 12-minute ride to get here. <laughs> All downhill, too. All downhill. That's yes, correct. Yes, yes. So we're really excited to talk to you about your new book, How to Read Architecture. But uh, before we get into that, I'd like to kind of go back. Where, where are you from? Are you uh, are you local to L.A.? Or are you uh, from somewhere else? Yes, I, I grew up in the Santa Monica area of Los Angeles. I went to the University of Southern California during the height of postmodern classicism. And at that point, looked at the city as a kind of barren landscape in comparison to what the aspirations, the urban aspirations of postmodernism were at that time and couldn't wait to get out. I think that the year before I left, I I finally fell in love with Los Angeles and saw what is so fantastic about being here. And I ended up going to graduate school in the Northeast and staying there for a while and then find myself back home in Southern California. So based on my my research, it, you got a, a bachelor's in architecture, right, from uh, USC. That's correct. But then you you went out east for your graduate degree and, and a PhD, I believe, at uh, Cornell and, and Princeton. That's correct. But you weren't studying architecture anymore. You were studying architectural history theory? Yes, I, w- I went into architectural history at Cornell and then kept it on through Princeton. Was that kind of the plan from the beginning or did you think that you were going to be an architect? It became a, a plan very early on. I had a fantastic and inspirational architectural history instructor at USC, Paul Gigas, who ended up ended up going on to Arizona State. And I really fell in love with the topic quite early on. So it was really in many ways a linear track. I, I stopped and deferred my education in order to uh, have enough hours to achieve professional licensure. So I worked as a professional architect ever so briefly oh. with my expertise being shopping malls. <laughs> Really? Which at the time wasn't cool, but then it later on did become cool after the Harvard Guide to Shopping and and Cool House and all of that. (laughs) Yeah. So where were you working? I worked here at a firm called Charles Coburn Associates, Uh and it went under during one of the many recessions. But one of the spinoffs was Altoon Porter, Altoon and Porter, and that became Mm -hmm. Stir Architects, which in fact was all, I think um, John Jurdy started at Charles Coburn's, might have come out of that firm as well. And then what did you do after you got your PhD? Did you start teaching? Yes, I went into, uh, I went straight into teaching with an unfinished dissertation. I taught at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. It was a pretty shocking change from the Northeast. I didn't even really know where Iowa was on the map because it's where the weather was always being shown for the coasts. You know, they would put the (laughs) weather up for Los Angeles and New York and it would cover Iowa. I arrived in a blinding blizzard in January. It happened to be a place at that moment in time that was a, a locus of intense architectural theory. So Jennifer Bloomer was there at the time, Robert Segrist, Catherine Agram, Mark Rakitansky, so some of the editors from Assemblage, which was 
the journal to be reading at that moment in time were all located there, a kind of diaspora from Chicago and from other places to start this intense research school. So just real quick, <laughs> I found, that was me pounding the table, but um, Jennifer has been one of my heroes for, God, since um, middle 90s when her um, book came out. And uh, that, before that, even then the pamphlet. Yes. It was, uh, I'm trying to remember the pamphlet that it was in. What was it called again? Is, was it Assemblage? I think it was Assemblage. The book was The Scripts of Joyce and Piranesi. Yes. Yeah. Tables of Bauer has been That's like a right. touchstone That's for right. me. It's kind of a launching point for a lot of what I think about architecture. So the fact that you, that you mentioned, I was like, wait, when you said Iowa State, I was curious. I'm like, are you going to start telling me you went to school with Jennifer Bloomer? <laughs> yeah. No, she was absolutely transformative in the way so many of us thought about research and writing and and making architecture. I, I think she just exploded uh, a lot of restrictions and limitations on what a writing project is and what a design project is and the hybridity between the two. In fact, I, I uh, when I looked at your uh, the, the PDF of the book, one of the first things I did was I went to the index to see who was going to be in the uh, in the book. And the, so the three the three names I went to look for uh, four actually was see how much Heisman was in there. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> then see, a lot to see how much Paranese was in there. And then I looked for Jennifer Bloomer. <laughs> and then, uh, oh, and Hayduck. I was looking, so I was looking for all four of them. I'm like, okay. And I had no idea that you, I didn't even see that, you know, that, that you went to Iowa State. So I, those are the four people I actually, when I look at a book now, it's like, okay, can I see these four individuals in this book? Because the paper I was working on was uh, encompassing all of the, their thinking, a lot of their thinking. So that, uh, just just a kind of a side note, but it was just uh, fun to hear that. Small world. And it's drinking. It is, yes. <laughs> oh, this, absolutely. This world. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So from Iowa, did you return back to Los Angeles? Yes. After Iowa State, I was mm -hmm. there for a short time. And then I got an offer from Woodbury University in Norman Millar. And it was great to come back to a big city and the sunshine and everything that LA has to offer. And I've been here ever since. And, and you've been, uh, you're still teaching at Woodbury. I'm still teaching yeah. at Woodbury. This is going to be, I, I have to sort of gasp when I say this, my 20th year there is coming up. And I've really come to feel myself a part of the Los Angeles community and a part of Woodbury. It's a great place to teach. The students are, are a great community there. And I feel every day when I drive home that I have a great job. Not a lot of people get to say that. That's pretty great after yeah. 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Very few people get to say it's that after true. 20 years. So um, what are your primary interests in, in teaching and, and, and research? My interest in teaching and research would be to expand the margins or the boundaries of architecture, the limitations of architecture into other disciplines. So the other books I've worked on, this is my first solely authored book, but I co-authored Architecture and Fashion about 20 years ago. And then I took that into Eating Architecture, which was another collection of edited, an edited collection that's been highly influential. It's It really almost opened a field in and of itself, that publication. And you're seeing lots of conferences and other publications on the intersection of architecture, food, the culinary arts, gastronomy, and things like that. Strangely, I think that these interests were really formal, more than sociopolitical or even material, insofar as we can look at fashion as what some fashion designers today, Iris von Herpen, for example, are exploding how we make form and surfaces in ways that architects have yet to approach. So, mm. 
And through these formal explorations, I've come to see them now in their kind of material and sociopolitical relevance as well. It, it, was that just a coincidence that the two projects that you had co-edited previously both addressed this kind of intersection between architecture and an unrelated field like fashion or or food? Yes and no. The The food book came out of a design studio that I offered. And this term, I, in fact, I'm teaching a studio on skyscrapers through the lens of textile design, clothing design, and enclosure. So, you know, one smart scholar, smart academics should craft an, an area of expertise. And that generally is in the in history and theory would be something like, you know, modernism in 18th century. Often it's really chronologically based and you spend a lot of time working on your area, your major area of research. Mine was Italian architecture between World War One and World War Two, And you really build a career off of that. The thing you're not supposed to do is do many different things and be all over the place. I think moving from one place to another and having one foot in design studios and one foot in the history theory curriculum allowed me to shuttle back and forth more. But the coincidence was somewhat curated as in so far as I was going to have another book, which I ended up not following through on, on architecture and cinema in Los Angeles and the intersections of that. And I spent a fair amount of time researching that. So it's going to be food, film, and fashion were the kind of the three areas of investigation outside the realm of architecture that I wanted to import into architecture. The film publication, it became overwhelming because every week there's a new film about LA or in LA, pretty much as a set or how it performs, how the industry performs and transforms the city urbanistically in so many ways. And and there were a lot of books on architecture and film at the time. And I kind of put that aside and, and maybe I'll get back to it and maybe I won't. After having uh, just finished this, I think I'm never going to write again. It was yeah. a big, <laughs> it was a lot of work. So, yeah. Can I ask about, just to clarify, you said that you were thinking of film, fashion, food as a formal exercise, not a sociopolitical one, or that that was sort of what you were seeing in the in the discipline. People were talking about it formally and not sociopolitically. That's a really good question. And I was thinking as I was saying that I'm not convinced myself that it was purely formal. The fashion project came out of my time at Cornell, specifically a class that Val worked taught and seminar colloquium that the graduate students offered annually at Princeton that time. And so that moment in time period while working on my PhD was was a time of architecture's peak of interest in criticality and architecture maintaining a political voice, architecture as a sociopolitical discipline. So that was the driver. But in the end, I realized that my design studio interest, not wearing the history theory hat, but wearing the design studio professor hat, were really coming from the Cornell experience of the Cornell, the old Cornell school, the Texas Rangers, Colin Rowe, Peter Eisenman, and all of that. And so it became, in the teaching of design studios, almost completely a formal pursuit. But they're, they're intertwined. They're inseparable. And I ask that in reference to where we will be going with the discussion of your book, because I feel like your book can be read in both ways. And that's good. But um, I don't need to jump ahead, Paul. We'll, we'll get to the book. Well, I think it's actually a, a, a nice segue into to this book. This book, How to Read Architecture, I think that's uh, just the title alone seems like a critical read for anybody that is is pursuing a, a career in architecture or is, is thinking about studying architecture. 
Is this kind of an approach, the approach that you talk about in this book, is this something that you've incorporated generally into your work as an educator? Well, I, I guess I guess what I'm asking is what what is kind of led up to the writing of this book? You're incredibly perceptive because it's in a way the title is really kind of throwing down a kind of or drawing a line in the sand. Absolutely. There's a provocation in it. It has this intentional kind of nerdy textbooky manual how-to, right? You know, how to change a tire, how to read architecture. At the same time, it's also asserting, well, architecture is legible, right? If you can read it, it's legible. And not everybody agrees with that first and foremost. So the book evolved from Routledge. The publisher saw a gap in the field for textbooks. So it's a, it's a textbook at that level. Oh, it's considered a textbook. It's considered a oh. textbook. That's the length. It's divided into mm-hmm. weeks for enough weeks to sustain a class. Mm-hmm. But it's also organized in a way that you can pick and choose chapters and you don't have to read it. There's not a linear sequencing, so to speak, that it, it works autonomously. And they came up with the idea of something on reading architecture that uh, they explained to be very much of the Cornell School. Transparency, literal and phenomenal, typology, things like this. And I thought, well, I could do this book. You know, I'm teaching a class that's kind of like it. And and I'll just, you know, I'll crank it out in about two years and it'll be done. And eight years is what the process took me from start to finish, probably a little bit more than that. So it got a lot more complex and involved as I moved forward. But so back to the topic, which I'm sure is familiar to everybody who is in this conversation, that, you know, we're, we have been for a while in a moment where architecture's representational value It's a critical value and uh, even social political agendas have been questioned pretty seriously. And I may agree with some of those points of view, in fact, that architecture isn't about representation, that architecture really its primary job is the production of shapes and space, not to make some kind of political critique. And I might even agree that political critique can get in the way of designing and making architecture. I certainly witnessed in the early 90s studios where students would throw up their hands and say, you know, well, we're in such a, a sensitive social political neighborhood. The only thing we can do is not to build. And when theory leads you to that kind of discussion, it's a really dangerous cul-de-sac to be in. So while I might might uh, have a, a kind of propensity to lean in these directions, I also believe that we want to get the world interested in architecture. And at a very general level, we read it. You know, we look at it, we analyze it, and we are constantly reading it, even as lay people. And that to keep it mystified is something that is very, very rarefied and with a language that people don't really understand, that kind of theory speak that at a certain point in time, you couldn't find these words in dictionaries even, that we do read it, we do look at it, we do analyze it, and that's inarguable. I've noticed that that you use two different verbs in, in describing the ideas behind this book, reading and also interpreting. Correct. Are, are those interchangeable or do you think that they are distinctly different in how, how they're defined? I think you're putting a, a finer point on this than I, I did in the publication. And maybe some meta text about that would have been useful in the introduction. Reading and interpreting are are not the same thing insofar as we read a text and architecture is not 
it's not a book, mm-hmm. right? And and I think this is the argument that has to do with questioning its representational value. Architecture being not a book, we don't read it. We don't run our fingers across it like it's Braille. There are some things we can read that are literary, and I talk about that in the beginning, whether it's a sign, a building telling you what its job is or dates or markers on it. I think very early architecture was a book, much more so an Egyptian temple had writing all over it. And, and it was more stable than or had more duration than many of the texts that were available at the time. But it's evolved away from that. We have books. So interpreting, really, this book is about interpreting more so than reading. So it's a kind of a loose slippage between the terms. But the assertion is still there that architecture has a set of codes and strategies that make it readable in a way that may be different than words in a book. I used to teach an architecture summer program with Stephen Ward uh, in Kentucky, and we had three weeks with these students that were high schoolers. And one of the things we did with them every summer was we walked around the city of Lexington, Kentucky, and then also Louisville, Kentucky. And we said, we're not just going for a walk. We are reading the city. This is what we're doing on this walk. We are reading the city. And for us, it was about teaching these high school age students how to understand the built world. It wasn't about like interpreting it in any way beyond just your, you know, these were high school kids. How do you understand what does this door mean versus this door? If it has steps or doesn't, if it, you know, is a wide open or, or narrow, if it's a blank wall or, or one that's full of windows, you know, what do those things mean in a sort of economic and social sense of the city? And so for sort of lay people, I think this notion of just reading it, like we all can read it. I think that's wonderful, but I, I'm also really intrigued by this sort of deep, yeah, much more academic interpretation of it as well, which I think, uh, when I do finish reading the whole book, I will be able to dig in to as well as an architect, not as a as a lay person. The appeal is to to lay people. And I, and I love the reading the city topic as well. I think it's it's very similar. And the book is strategized like that to a certain extent where you approach the building from the outside, you're standing outside of it. And what do you see? And how do you begin to understand, interpret, read it? And there's an elision between these ideas. But at that very kind of basic level of how do we transform our intuitions into confidences about understanding the world. Exactly. Exactly. That's beautiful. So in the book, you describe three ways that readers can better understand architecture. One is reading a building from the outside in, two, from the inside out, and three, from the position of out and out or formal architecture. Can you talk a little bit about what what those mean? Yes, the book started out having a different organization and at some point in the in the writing of it I realized I'm never going to get this done. There was a one there were five chapters, one was on uh drawing and process and it was just it was too much. It was it was all architecture all time everywhere. And I really just tried to be bloody minded about it and think, okay, how do we see how do we see a building? And in in the end it really the outside in many ways is the most important thing in terms of the larger global impact it can have. And of course, that depends where it is. You know, if you're in a cabin in the woods, having a fireplace in the winter probably matters a lot more in the inside than the outside, the way it looks. There was also a, a, a kind of intention behind this to bring fields back together, which have been compartmentalized in the field of architecture. So landscape design and urban design being implied in the first section of from the outside in, and then interior design and mechanical systems and environments being something that's also been 
given away to another discipline, also being brought back into what we consider to be capital A out and out architecture. The other strategy was having taught for a number of years, I found that my students, when they would reach the capstone project of their undergraduate program, often were challenged to understand what an architectural project was. So when you would ask them what your project is, they would give you a programmatic answer. You know, it's a school, it's a museum. And and you'd always say, oh, no, that's not your project. That's your program. What's your project? And so in teaching seminars, uh, pre-thesis seminars, we would have that explore the program, the context, the tectonics, the process in a way in, in order to get it out of the way so they could figure out what their project was, which was what was left over afterward. And so it's positioned to both stitch things back together, but also to isolate form as independent of all of those other things. So can you talk a little bit about how the book is structured? You mentioned that it kind of changed as as you went along. Yes. So I, I think I'm trying to remember what the, the first five chapters where I think I mentioned it was it was context. It was uh, process was the one I ended up cutting out. So it was a lot on how we draw and how we decide what to draw, whether we draw something in perspective or we draw it as an axonometric. It's a big decision. There's a lot associated with how we construct a drawing and how we use models and drawings to move the design process forward. This one became a way of saying that these other parts of architecture, the context, and each one is divided into into threes, three sections, like a like a useful textbook. It's very ordered that way. So outside in starts with uh, terroir, which is to bring in this culinary metaphor of the land and how we look to the soil, water, cardinal points, solar orientation, wind, and all of those environmental factors as a part of the design process. The second chapter there is scenography, looking at the significance of the picturesque and irregularity and and that. And then the final being criticality, which, you know, I don't take it all the way to Sarah Whiting and Bob Summel's essay on the Doppler effect, because it would just be, you know, really difficult to include in a, in a book of this purpose and this length. But talks about how, <laughs> right? It's like, but it talks about how culture matters and architecture can play a role in this. Uh, without going kind of rotely through all of these at the same time, within it though, with within this organization, there are things that I do to break chronology. And in breaking chronology, what I allow myself to do is then insert global. Uh, differences and diversity into the conversation in a more meaningful way than chronology allows. So I can insert a plurality of voices. I can attempt to break the hegemonic systems of chronology, compartmentalizing and privileging certain voices above others. And so the book really attempts to explode the canon by taking a topographic approach to how we read architecture that is it's a kind of great equalizer to sort of imagine you're walking around the building from the outside and then in and then exploding the walls and looking at the forms. And so the book starts out with a quotation from Beatrice Colomina talking about the labyrinth and how the um, Daedalus may have made the Cretan labyrinth, but it was Ariadne who understood that you had how to escape it with a string. And that is an indication of what's to come. So the epigrams that I have in the beginning of every chapter introduce a kind of a plurality of voices, a, uh, a dialogic versus a monologic system. It was a big decision to include footnotes in the textbook because that kind of puts people off. But I wanted, again, that plurality of voices to see that there are many people talking about this, not just one person, kind of this heroic authorial voice. 
that probably didn't answer your question, but it, it got to something. Yeah, no, no, it, it, I, I think it did answer my question. Ken, did you have a question? This book for me, there there was a, one a, when I was early a college student, one of the books, because I wasn't really, didn't have a, uh, any good architecture background, great architecture background. But one of the books that I was told to read um early in the first semester was a book called Master Builders. And it was about uh, three architects, uh, Wright, Mies, and Korb. And I think that just from my kind of just real quick scan of the book, it's this seems like a book that would be essential for um, early college students who are in architecture programs. This is like, this is not just for the layperson. This really is for everyone to who's in the profession or going to be a professional to, to think about how, how to think about architecture. There's a question, there's something that's come up on the, on the, on the Arconic website that's, um, I'm just curious to get your take on. Yale has pulling it back from their, their kind of Western history uh, art survey course and starting to um, and, uh, look a little bit deeper and, and getting past that. And it seems to have provoked a lot of discussion lately. And what's interesting about the discussion, I kind of let it go for a while because it reminded me of something that's been on the internet, on Twitter. I don't know if you followed it. It's uh, these, uh, and it seems it's, there isn't any mistaking the slant here because it's decidedly white nationalists. So it's the traditional traditionalists in architecture. And how do we manage? I mean, part of seeing and part of understanding and reading architecture is the culture we've brought up and brought up in, the environments we are inhabiting, the the education we've been given, um, and our understanding of the world. How do you see that playing in how we actually read architecture? It's such a great question. The Yale, the Yale idea of abandoning the survey, the grand survey of art, which had previously been Western art or Western architecture, which got expanded into global art and global architecture is, you know, on the surface, it sounds wonderful. I haven't, I haven't really taken a side in the argument. I'm, I'm still thinking about it. Mark Yarzenbeck came out highly in favor of it. Of course, he's been a great proponent of expanding the canon all over the place. And he co-authored that book with Francis Ching and uh, Vikram Prakash on global architecture, which is such a contribution to the field. There's something to be said for a grand narrative. And if that grand narrative can be one that is inclusive of diversity, why not keep a good story? The problem is the argument is they just don't have the time to do it in one class. And so they're breaking it up into fields, something like, as I recall, the Silk Road was one of the compartmental classes they have. But then I just don't understand how students will will be able to take enough classes to sort of put the story all together. So that I need to know more about. But it's an enticing, it certainly is an enticing prospect to have these deep sondages into topics that place them all on an equal level. Diversity in architecture and architectural education comes, of course, from a diversity of the way we look, the diversity of who the professors are and who the voices are in part. But that's not enough because I don't I don't think that just because I'm female, I necessarily have a different point of view. I was educated in a, a pretty straightforward formal system, and I've learned to support that in my own education. Uh, it was at Iowa State that exploded those ways of thinking about design education. But what we need are diverse pedagogies. And more experimentation in terms of opening the voice about concerning what is legitimately architecture or illegitimately architecture, but something we want to look at because it's exciting and it can move the field forward. And it's great to see so much interest in that on Arconnect 
in part, I think, and in, in lots of other social media, that this is becoming something that we take for granted, not something that we have to implement. Though we still have, I still see all guy juries and all guy panels and things like that. So we have work to do. Yeah, it's been interesting because what is apparent to many of us, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of it because I, I know I really wasn't paying attention to a lot of the history in my history classes. I wasn't really motivated by, I had Zainet Zainab Chalik um, as a history professor at my, she's at my university. Wow. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. And, I, and I, I missed a, I missed a wonderful opportunity to learn a lot more because I was such a, a, um, a, a bit of an asshole. But what? Wait, what, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Ken, wait. Were you That's... an asshole, or were you just, <laughs> as most architecture students are, so focused on studio that you're not paying attention to the? other classes that I really was, wouldn't I was immature. If you... I was immature. I, I'll say that. I was immature because I really missed out. And I have a friend who's at Princeton right now who's had uh, her as a as a um, graduate professor. And I am blown away by the work that she's done. And I, I really, like I said, I missed an opportunity. But what, what I what's interesting to me has been, even in my evolution and my growth as, a, as an individual, but what I'm seeing now, what I think you're seeing, I mean, it's, 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 we're all seeing it, right? I mean, there's this fear of white Western culture that they are like somehow after dominating for thousands of years are going to lose everything in like 20 days. Like we're going to lose it by the end. If we don't, we're going to lose it. We were, we were losing it in 2016. It was all over. So now we've got, we, there's this, it's just, it's, it seems important to me that we kind of take a step back and acknowledge that, you know, a small continent is not the sum of the entire world. And that, and I think it's, it's really shaped our worldview in such a radical way that it's, we need to kind of check ourselves. And I'm wondering, I, I'm like, how do I see differently? And one of the things I, one of the architects that I'm really I'm, I'm passionate about today is uh, Francis Carre. I mean, he's done in Africa some work that is just absolutely the most impressive body of work. And I'm not sure that a lot of people know who he is. Yeah. I, I just shook my head to Paul and I think he's... He designed the... Was it the most recent Serpentine? Or no, that was... Oh, that uh, one, yeah. No, not, not the... Uh, no. The one uh, the, in 2017, African. He designed yeah, a yeah, million yeah. based on the, a local type of uh, tree. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah that it's beautiful. Community. Yeah. 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 What What is it about his uh, his work that especially that, that you gravitate to, Ken? Well, I think in the most interesting sense of the work it is the most connected work in terms of, in, of culture, of the people, of what it means to, to accept people where they are. It, that means their abilities and actually manifest something that is so enormously beautiful that people look at, you know, think when I think about how we've been taught architecture, how we've been taught to look at the world and how, you know, some of my um, some of my formation has come from like Heinrich Wolflin, his principles of art history. That book was very, very important. Wolflin is so important. I agree. Yeah. 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 And it's how I see the world. And I'm wondering, does that seeing the world that way has it prevented me from seeing things in a very different way? And I'm wondering, can I unlearn to relearn? And and is that possible? In is it is it possible to re understand a building in a different way? Given the fact that we've been, you know, we've had this we've had this set of uh, lenses on our on our face for so long. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's it's another highly relevant question. The best I can answer it with is with a kind of anecdote. Uh, 
I remember taking Colin Rowe's lecture course on English architecture. And there was a moment when he came on to talk about the Red House. And that that's a project that's in every textbook that at least I had of. I don't know if it still is now, but it was in every architectural history survey book. And I remember looking at this and thinking, it's just a cottage. And at that moment when he was talking about it, he said, you know, you know, it's just this house is just not very important. Move on. And it was just so revelatory to see somebody shake the cannon up and say, this doesn't belong in it. And there's so many of these buildings that just stay in these textbooks and you wonder why. Why is it here? How did it get here? And why do we still talk about it? I was fortunate enough to spend a year in the United Arab Emirates a couple of years ago, and we drove to Oman and we spent a fair amount of time wandering through mud brick fortresses that were just amazing, you know, with these 20-foot thick walls and and little cities on top of big, big, big plinths. And, and it was just incredible. And you think, why isn't this in, why isn't this in the canon? And it has nothing to do with political correctness. It's just really awesome architecture that has gotten ignored. And I think in a, to a certain extent, that's what Yarzenbeck's point of view is. The, my book has this because Yarzenbeck pointed it out to me, you know, those rock cut churches in Lalibela in Africa. And while it's great to have Africa, you get to check off one of the continents on the, you know, the accreditation survey that you did your proper global duty. What's really amazing is that these things were cut out of live (laughs) rock. That's what's cool about them. And so I think really rethinking the canon and how we go about including different kinds of architecture in the survey is what needs to happen. And these things are so slow to change. If you put all the textbooks out there on a table and you compare all of the images, they're just kind of riffing off of each other rather than claiming new ground. And that's a problem. So there's the content, there's the content question, and then there's the historiography question. And and history history geeks like to talk about historiography. How do we write the history? What is the science and the study of making history itself? So I mentioned chronology, but it's not the only way. You can look at things like the the long durée or the the annals school, which looks at the the mere events and doesn't look at all of the heroic buildings. And so you would see those, you'd see the all of the grass huts and the houses and where people lived and how people worked over the huge monuments and the the peaks of the mountains and you'd be in the valleys of the human beings instead, if you were to follow that approach. So that there are all different ways of writing it, as well as what you include that makes it a feast for architectural knowledge. So do you see the field of architectural history going through kind of like an inevitable like evolution, given where we are culturally now to start like truly like reevaluating and I I guess reforming what what architectural history is with consideration to all of these these areas that have not been given due attention? I mean, that's been going on for quite some time. I think theory really pushed history into rethinking itself. So as I had mentioned, uh, Colomina before, looking at the space of the female body, where the female body inhabits the architecture of Adolf Loos or Le Corbusier was revolutionary at that time. And and looking at minor architectures, such as uh, Rudovsky's Architecture Without Architects that's coming from the 1960s was also revolutionary. So these these things have been happening. It's just that the, the kind of more conservative elements of architectural history, it's, it tends to be a conservative discipline, are slow to react. My A good friend of mine who's in LA, Patricia Morton, was the editor of the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians. And she 
really made an attempt to breathe life into it through different approaches and different content. But, you know, in the end, if, if we don't do this, history is going to, it'll die. It'll become boring. I'd written down this, not that the conversation was boring, but that one of the problems to overcome with history is that I think people think it's a really boring topic. And what a lot of these new ways of approaching history have done is they are not, they're not just making the playing fields more even, if that's possible, but a little more even, but they're also making it exciting and interesting to read about. In the end, it's about good stories. And if you can't tell a good story, then you're not going to keep your readers. Before the before we started this, uh, uh, before we hit the record button, we were talking about how culture these days has has uh, been kind of changing in a way that you know people are becoming less patient and and they're having a harder time focusing on on kind of long form journalism. Even movies tend to be too long for most people these days. Do we kind of lower the bar when it comes to? topics like architectural history and cater to that kind of uh, reduced attention span that, that we find ourselves existing in? Or, I mean, how do we how do we make uh, a topic like architectural history uh, relevant and exciting for this kind of younger generation of, of uh, students or, or just society? Well, it's it's somewhat, I don't know, ironic or paradoxical is the right word, given that I wrote this giant, you know, 300 page book, like, will anybody ever read it? Maybe pieces of it. I tried to make the illustrations very captivating. So that would help lots and lots of illustrations. And you mentioned that you don't have to read the entire book. No, right? and you I mean, don't. You and read, and, and read parts of it, which is that, a help <laughs> that might make it a lot easier for people to pick up a, a book these days if they know that they don't have to read the whole thing. One hopes. But yeah. right now I'm I'm working with the graduate students at Woodbury University to uh, experiment with an online history survey. And if you'd asked me this maybe even five years ago, I would have said, no, I really don't think this is a, a great way to convey material, in part because I don't want to lose my job. You know, this idea that it's online and they won't need me anymore, it's a little bit worrisome. But at, at this point, you want people to learn and I'm not going to change students' cognition. I need to work with this with what I have. And so I think that maybe the Internet is the best way for, for students to learn. They can learn at their own pace. They can take classes when they're awake and ready and receptive to them. They can go backwards and forwards. They can um, have video clips. So I've been having a lot of fun looking at video clips and trying to determine which ones are of acceptable quality. But, you know, I find myself even looking at kind of cartoon clips, like what's the difference between the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic? I'll do anything if it can help get it to stick. But if it's, is it lowering the bar? Should we fight that good fight and try to keep the important parts of history alive. And I wonder in, in experimenting with this class, I can't tell those good stories this way. And that kind of the raconteur part of being a professor or historian really falls apart. And some of the good juicy gossipy pieces that I might have, the things that help you remember those moments to sort of add and glom everything onto, they're dropping out of this. And, and that's a concern that it flattens it and makes it dull. So I, I don't have a clear answer there, but I'm trying to use the Internet. Yeah. Well, that's where everybody is these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it reminds me of, you know, I, I've been noticing this trend on uh, YouTube and through a lot of, you know, new media outlets of especially in the in the science uh, in the science world where these science topics are kind of taught, I guess, in a way through this kind of 
very entertainment based uh, <laughs> format with like really nice animated illustrations and very kind of quick, quick 10 minute classes, I guess, entertainment classes. I haven't seen anything like that with history or architectural history, mm -hmm. especially. But I mean, you know, maybe that those those types of approaches could be ways to kind of bring people back in to learn more and, and get more engaged. I, I agree. I, I mean, I think they can be very effective, although in, in talking to students, they find and I agree with them. I don't like to watch videos online. I would rather read. Mm hmm. So like, <laughs> me too. Right. Well, like, there's something about it, like, well, particularly news. So if I'm if I'm reading about if I'm looking, trying to find out what's going on with the impeachment, the videos are too slow. I can read much more quickly. And this seems to be a trend. So I'm hoping that 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 says something and more people are going to bookstores. So there's an uptick there and you can bring a book to the beach. So that's a great thing as well. You know, there's a I think that maybe they can coexist these these different forms of media. I'm not certain. I was just going to say, when I have been taking, you know, life is so busy these days. I'm working many, many hours. Everyone is so busy. We're all connected. We're all available at every moment. When I'm looking to really take a vacation lately, what I do is I go up north to Michigan to a lake and I take books, hard books, and I can turn my phone off and be checked out of the internet and the, you know, all constant connectivity and just read a book. And it's like a huge luxury to be able to do that lately. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I just was in Marfa, Texas for the first time. So I got to go see all the Donald Judd work there. And I, you know, I brought a book with me as a form of relaxation and pleasure. You know, that was my vacation. So I, I, exactly. I, I see exactly. that as something that has some longevity to it. But if the books, again, if the books don't tell good stories, you're going to put them down. So I think that the key to that is telling the stories. One of my favorite chapters, I mean, I couldn't pick which would be my favorite chapters, but one of my favorite chapters in this uh, book is the one on inhabitation. And I can tell you, like, I can tell you all the things I think are not working in this. And I can tell you secrets about the book that maybe other people wouldn't know. But in this one, it starts with a discussion of Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own. And I don't mention this in this particular essay, but of course, Virginia Woolf had a famous affair with Vida Sackville West. And so I go from that, starting with Virginia Woolf, and I talk about the detective, the psychoanalyst, and the maid. And it ends with Eileen Gray. And I don't exactly spell it out, but maybe I do. I think I'm being subtle. Maybe I wasn't all that subtle. But it ends with Eileen Gray abandoning her house and spending the rest of her life with her maid. So there's a kind of book ending that's going on there, a little subtext of, of saucy uh, romance that, that you can sort of lace these stories with that I think are very, very important to keeping your reader's attention. Absolutely. I mean, that's, as you say, the story is what is going to keep people engaged. And if you make the story interesting in a way that is also fun for them to then learn something, that, of course, is the, is the best way. And thinking again also this week about Taliesin, it's in the news because the Taliesin and School of Architecture yes. is closing its doors. And thinking about Frank Lloyd Wright, he was an amazing architect. I mean, he just was. He did amazing work, genius level work. But he also had all these incredible personal stories that were just, you know, make him absolutely irresistible. You can't help but pay attention to, <laughs> to all of the stories that he was doing because, um, 
Because, yeah, they're fun. I still don't know why there hasn't been a, I was a gonna, movie. I, you just took the words out of my yeah. mouth. I have talked with friends numerously. And when, when we're in Los Angeles, we we should all get together and make this happen. Frank Lloyd Wright, the movie. I mean, course, yeah. it, it's it's just such fertile ground. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, which section of his life do <laughs> totally, you select? Totally. I know, I know. It could be... It could be a uh, ten series, uh, <laughs> uh, a ten a ten season series on HBO. Netflix too. series, yep, yep. I think there's already been discussions in the Arconnect forum about you know casting different people. You know, oh, who would we cast as Frank? I think I think one of the uh, Edward Norton. I think was. Oh yeah, he'd be good as a young yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm pushing for think, Brad Pitt, of course. Yeah, well, Donna, <laughs> he'd, of he'd course. sell tickets. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, maybe your next your next project should be a script, then. That it it crossed my mind. I was yeah. thinking about going to Pasadena City College and just taking a, a script writing class to get that story out there. Another thing, another thing about the book I wanted that just occurred to me that I wanted to take this moment to insert that breaking chronology allowed me to do is that I could talk about contemporary architecture in the same sentence as historic architecture. And I think bringing these stories into the contemporary moment, it's an incredibly important thing to do because we don't see the relevance otherwise. And so the organization tends to end with something contemporary. And what one of the things in this book that I find to be interesting, maybe to you guys out in the Midwest, less so, but for here on the West Coast, there's a lot of LA and California architecture in here. So I got to publish my friends. Mm. And that was a nice thing to do. So a lot of people who have built work in the area make appearances, Lorcan O'Hurlihy, Frank Escher and Ravi Gunwardena. I'm trying to think of anybody else I have in here off the top of my head, but you know, you kind of get the idea that I looked at this book kind of as a Siegfried Gideon space time and architecture was really an inspiration because he wrote about all his friends at the time. Mm. And Manfredo Tafuri's writing where he would move from the avant-garde, say, from Russian constructivism to 18th century France, all in one paragraph, this kind of disruptive explosive chronology. Frank Lloyd Wright, back to Wright, you know, there's such a kind of cult following around him. He he plays a, a less of a role in this, but he comes in, strangely enough, as for his heating ventilating systems and the Larkin building. So the question is, what do you think are Frank Lloyd Wright's biggest contributions to architecture out there besides maybe his progeny? What did Frank Lloyd Wright give us? It's a hard it's, one. Yeah. Prairie style. Prairie style. Prairie style. Yeah. yeah. That's an important one. Looking at context. Ornament. Yeah, maybe. context was everything. Yeah. I mean, you don't get falling water. Everybody has a different understanding of falling water. It's like, no, he didn't. No, he cited the project uh, very different than people will have an understanding about how they would cite a project. I mean, it's an American expression of architecture, which we did not really have prior to him, I would say. You know, when you were talking about the citing of falling water, the other opportunity that the internet has given this book and other books to come or social media, but I'd say the internet, is that we don't have to use always the iconic pictures or the same photographs. So we always see in books the same view, the same corner view of various projects. And so for I did include uh, the Kaufman House in the book, but instead of the iconic picture of the cantilever over the waterfall, I focused on the boulder in front of the hearth. Mm. That's actually delightful. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, that's it just, totally true. And because for me, that's what makes the house is exactly the sighting. And I use it in, as, as an example of Gottfried Zemper's hearth and mound coming together in Wright's work. And of course, um, Wright was familiar with Zemper through Sullivan. But 
when you go to Falling Water and you see that rock, that stone floor, it's so incredibly powerful, much, much more powerful than that that great view from the waterfall itself is the, that interior space is incredible. Yeah. I mean, we live in an interesting time when, you know, so much of the world is made aware of so much of the, the great architecture mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, that has been built and is being built yet. It's being, it's being experienced through two dimensional, a two dimensional experience that is often the same, you know, like as, mm-hmm. so, I mean, without actually visiting falling water, in a way, it almost is this two-dimensional image that mm-hmm. we're all we all immediately bring to mind when thinking of that project. Yet it's so much more it's it's so much more rich than that. Is that is that a, a topic that's brought up in your book about you know uh, kind of uh, reading architecture outside of the kind of the the two-dimensional images that that we're all just uh, so accustomed to? I, I mean, it it discusses how architecture is one of those art forms that one it's best to experience firsthand. It's mm-hmm. it's really hard to describe inhabiting a space from a two-dimensional picture, but we can't all go to all of these spaces. No. I haven't been to every single one of these buildings. I've done my darndest, but you know that's just almost impossible to do. So we conjure images from memory. We compare spaces to spaces we've been to before, and we kind of triangulate around them. But in the end, it's the iconic image that that wins. It's mm-hmm. the kind of the, the Charles Jenks moment of taking a picture of something and giving it a name, even though the architect didn't like that name that was given to it. You know, you're the architect's kind of helpless in terms of how critics will read and interpret the buildings. And then that's going to stick for for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So there is that. I'm trying to think. The other thing I talk about early in the book is the distinction between architecture and building, which is another thing I kind of shuttle back and forth with that, that we tend to think of architecture as something done with extra design intention, otherwise it's building. But there are buildings out there that are pretty amazing that architects didn't design and that we consider and that that are relevant. Back to the idea of confidence, I think that for me as an architecture student, for my architecture students, for, for people, lay people not in the field, there's always this hesitancy of what am I allowed to like? And this book, I think, is trying to say, you can like whatever you want. It's completely up to you what makes a good building and a bad building. And today, I, I really couldn't even tell. I just sometimes look at what's built in the city, and I, I pray one of my former students didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I guess what I was getting at is, you know, there, uh, there are so many times that I find also myself that I there are moments, spatial moments in architecture, mm-hmm. in buildings and in places in the city that would never be published in a in in any any publication that's talking about it as, you know, as architecture. But but it's moments, you know, and there are um, so I guess I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is like, does the book help people kind of get out of this mindset? Like, you know, to, to experience good architecture these days, you open up your your web browser and you search, you know, for architecture and you look at pictures of architecture because I, I, it's so easy to just navigate a city and miss all of these amazing moments. So when you're saying moments, I'm thinking the sinking city, Venice, Italy, because it's a city unusually that has never had cars in it. So Mm -hmm. some of the urban retrofit that's happened to change cities to accept the car hasn't. So you get these spaces that are extremely tight Mm -hmm. that would have been demolished a long time ago in a city with cars. Mm -hmm. 
then that would be your your could be called your vernacular architecture or could be called your your urban architecture or moments mm-hmm. when a city like Siena you're going through winding alleys and then you explode into this giant compo that you know you didn't know was there and it's mm-hmm. like fireworks go off. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one. I mean maybe that is the book how to read cities back to that topic which mm-hmm. is a really good one. I try to talk about it in terms of figure field, fields, uh-huh. and context, because really it's architecture and context that you're starting to get that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the formal dimensions, I would say, I've never thought about this before, but in the formal dimensions, you can see abstractly, but it's the build, the situatedness of architecture that give it those moments. Mm-hmm. But it's also picking the non-heroic, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm talking about, you know, I've been blown away sometimes by, you know, by the the spaces created by an interesting parking garage or or you know a an exit stair in a otherwise boring office building you know there's something there's there's little little moments that are that are discovered in just daily life that that can easily go missed that it, it's funny you mentioned that one of my favorite spaces in Los Angeles is the parking lot of the Beverly Center mm-hmm. because the first of all the way the ramps ramp into it. It's like almost a freeway expressway going up in there. So it's uh-huh. a very LA moment. But then when you're up there, you have these panoramas around you that you just don't get anywhere else except in these parking lots. And mm-hmm. so it's a really fabulous way of framing the city through mm-hmm. these large openings. My and a, ho- and a way that would be almost impossible to portray through photographs. You know, it's it's an ex- purely experiential. Purely experiential. Yeah. And my hope is simply that the the book gives you the tools to think about it that way and to look at that way. But there aren't great examples, I think, mm-hmm. of that. It, it's something there could be more of. I think, like, there's no conclusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the end, there's no conclusion to the book. And I think that the conclusion would have been to take some, maybe some case studies of buildings that aren't so heroic and apply the principles to them. And this might be getting at what you're talking about, uh, how one can just look at their the process of their everyday life. But I do talk about one thing I do have in there is coming from Lynch and Frederick Jameson is the idea of cognitive mapping and how if we were to draw our neighborhood, what would that look like and what would resonate as important? Like even drawing a map of L.A., I, I mean, I tend to start with the freeways and then I go straight to the Hollywood sign and then Tower Records or Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Tower Records is gone. Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. We're actually about to uh, publish a an article by one of our freelancers that talks about the uh, similarities between Los Angeles and Tokyo. It, it, it provides a lot of really fascinating uh, views of the of, of the city and, and comparisons. Let me jump in just to say this. This is my last comment. This whole discussion about just the whole discussion really has been just reinforcing to me what Ken said earlier, which was that I, I think your book would be should be required reading for young architecture students. I mean, I think that that students have to think about like and architects in general, we have to think so broadly. And part of what we have to think about is these sort of very, very simple questions of things like front porches, like, you know, moments mm-hmm. in a parking garage that are somehow take you beyond yourself, you know, finding these little moments of beauty. I just, I think that that's really important along with knowing who is Rem and who is Piranesi and who is, you know, who are all the other general academic 
questions. So yeah, I just wanted to reinforce and, and say again that I agree with Ken. I think this would be a great book for everyone who's interested in design to read. That makes me so happy to hear. And full disclosure, when I lived in Philadelphia, I did work briefly for Venturi Scott Brown and Associates. So there's a lot of that that interpretation and approach to architecture through the quotidian and the everyday and the front porch. That's Absolutely. A part of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Paulette, uh, we typically ask two questions at the end. No pressure. <laughs> uh, what, are you, what are you reading and what are you listening to these days? Oh, the reading I can start with, I'm reading this book, The Good Mothers, which is expose on the Indrangheta, which is the Reggio Calabria mafia in southern Italy. Yeah, it's it just came out on the Times bestseller list. And one of those rare moments, I just went straight and ordered it and I got it the next day and I'm almost done with it. Uh, so it's a, it's a documentary account of the women who were uh, really restrained, almost captive in their houses, rebelling against that kind of life and, and providing information to the government to get rid of really to reduce the mafia in that area. I don't think they'll, they'll ever get rid of it. That's not a, that's not an architectural answer. That's okay. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think what I've been looking at lately architecturally. I've been, yeah, not much lately after having worked on this book. I'm kind of drawing a blank. I think the last thing I assigned to my students might have been Robert Summel's Green Dot syllabus that's been hanging around, which is fairly old, but it's good for a thesis. And then listening to, well, I'm listening to you guys now. <laughs> that's a dodge. <laughs> what was it? Who who won the Grammys? I was just looking this up. I was, I'm, this is, shows you how out of it I am. I think Billie Eilish won. Billie Eilish was the name I was going My for daughter here. My was very excited about that. Yeah. And so I went to listen to Billie Eilish and um, trying to keep up with that. Oh, and I'm finally getting into Gwen Stefani. Oh. Talk about old, like old school here. Yeah. But I, 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 my daughter was into her for a while and it was like, I don't like her, don't like her. And then suddenly I got it. Yeah. I know. What's your, what's your position on Gwen? Mine? Yeah. You know, there was a period when I was in high school that I listened to a lot of Sublime, which, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I would not admit in in all uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> context, but uh, so she was she was a big she was a big uh, presence in that in that scene. That was about I, I've never really listened to uh, to her outside of that. But speaking of the Grammys, I did I was I, I I did watch it because my daughter is is like an awards show junkie, so I watched it with her and um, I was blown away by Tyler the Creator's performance. I have yeah. missed that one. It was it was amazing. So I've been have listening to, look that to up. his to his album Igor and which is incredible. Um, really, really, really good stuff. Shout out to Lizzo. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to go oh, home and. Lizzo, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was the other one. I was the other name I was just struggling for. She was amazing. She was on Saturday Night Live recently, wasn't she? Yes. Amazing performance. Yeah, yeah really incredible. She's got a really interesting backstory. Yeah. You know. Well, and I was going to say, Ken introduced me to Lizzo years ago because she's a Minneapolis native. So ah, really? Ken I was into her that. a yeah. long time oh, yeah. ago. And she's amazing. She, she's a classic flutist, isn't she? Yeah. I could see yes. that. Yes. Yeah. She can play the flute while rapping and twerking at the same time. So exactly, she's amazing. But get get this, I um, for some reason this came on. I was playing like classical guitar music on the radio on Pandora, and Al Demiola came on, and I thought, God, I'd really, I wonder if he's touring. So I'm going to go see Al Demiola in two weeks, just a little while. Nice, from here. yeah. 
Wow. Awesome. That's amazing. A legend. Yeah. One of the great things about living in in LA. That's fantastic. Minneapolis too, I bet. Minneapolis has got a good music scene. Yeah, Yeah. it does. Yeah. We don't get anyone touring here in Indianapolis. Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) Wait, that's not true. Well, uh, Paulette, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing some uh, background behind this new book. Uh, As Donna said, it really does seem like like necessary reading for all architecture students. Well, thank you, Paul, Donna, and Ken. It's been fun getting to talk about my book and myself. And um, yes, <laughs> I think I recommend it. Yes, it's. I'm. I'm very excited about the publication. Great, thanks it's so much. It's been a really fun conversation. Thank you. For thank you very on much. Today. And that concludes our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at rconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a comment and rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.